Hello, everyone, and welcome to the College Unlocked podcast, where we are here to demystify the college application and college admission processes. We're your hosts, Hollis and Jordana, and we're going to go ahead and help you unlock your college potential. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the College Unlocked podcast. Today, we are going to be talking all about building a college list and why it's important to have that list be balanced. When it comes to finding the schools that students can put on their list, we'll also discuss ways to research schools, what that process looks like, and why this entire process is important in terms of school research. Uh, And so we'll just jump right in. Sounds great. So one of the big things I think we need to talk about when we talk about this is understanding all the factors that go into admissions. Uh, And also understanding that admissions rates are different for a particular program or can be different for a particular program over a particular school. So it behooves you to do that research as well. Uh, So let's talk about all the factors and then we can talk about how we categorize schools. Does that sound good to you? Great. So we'll start with GPA. Obviously, that's the big one. So when we talk to our students and we talk to our colleges, we understand that there's two factors that basically make up 80% plus of the decision. That is the rigor of your curriculum in the context of your high school and your GPA within that rigor of curriculum. So, for example, we'll hear students say, you know, I'm a 4.0 student. I've never gotten a B. They've also never taken an AP class when their high school offers a lot of them. Or they haven't taken a dual enrollment class because they wanted to either, A, protect that GPA or didn't understand that colleges need that rigor. So a perfect 4.0 with no rigor is probably not as strong as a few Bs with lots of AP coursework. And the reason why I say it's within the context of the high school is because you, you can't be held accountable as a student for taking more rigor than your high school offers. Now, I notice I said accountable, not measured on, because there are options for students like dual enrollment, online coursework uh, that can be taken. It is not necessary to take it. So the important here when we talk about rigor of curriculum is what your high school offers. So if you're in a high school that offers four AP courses, taking all four AP courses would have you taking the most difficult curriculum at your high school. And that would be looked at that way. If you're at a high school, as some of the high schools that we work with are, that have 15 to 20 AP courses, that same student taking same four APs would not be considered as rigorous because they haven't taken advantage of the curriculum. And as we start talking about more elite schools, we also have to start talking about the the breadth and depth of the AP courses that are needed. Right. And understanding that the higher the selectivity of the institution. Or or the rejectivity. Right. um, The more students in the applicant pool are going to have, you know, four years of all five core academic subjects and rigor across all of those disciplines. And we've talked a little bit about this as well in that, you know, engineers still need to take writing courses. And so having that AP English, if you're applying to be an engineering student, is just as important 
as taking, you know, rigor across the maths and sciences for those highly selective schools. Now, if you are not reaching for those highly selective schools and you are, you know, looking at schools that have a wider range of admission possibilities and, you know, potentially um, a higher admit rate from that perspective, then like certainly it's still to your benefit to challenge yourself in the classroom and be academically ready. Um, but we are going to be talking about all of those buckets too. I think the important thing to recognize here is that let's assume you're going to be an engineer. You still have to write proposals that are going to go out. So it's important to understand that that AP English is still important to an engineer the same way that schools are going to look at math as a litmus test of college readiness. Correct. Um, so we often, and when I say we, I mean we as, as a society, um, tend to hear words when it comes to colleges like safety schools or backup schools. Um, and, you know, these are typically what people categorize as schools that they just assume they can easily get into regardless of the curriculum they've taken, regardless of the grades they've earned because of what they think they know about the institution, right? And it's their backup school in the event they don't get into the school they really want. Correct. So it's really not a school they're looking at going, oh, well, I never expected to go to my safety, right? right? And so part of building that balance list also covers those bases in the sense that we want students to be happy with all of the schools on their list, whether their impression of that school is a safety school or a school that they are, you know, hopefully genuinely excited about the opportunities when it comes to attending as well. Uh, there are some other factors too, in terms of ranking these that we have to look at when we look at those admissions probabilities. No school is a safety. There just isn't such a thing. We actually refer to it in our practice as a good bet. If you think about going to Vegas and laying your money down, let's face it, with as much as we're spending on colleges these days, those are bets that we're putting down that our students are going to finish and are going to do well. Uh, we want to look at those good bet schools. But we can't look at that without looking at the context of what's going on at the college. So we talked about the high school and the, the context of the high school, but we also have to talk about the context of the college, right? Did they over-enroll in prior years? We, we've run into that numerous times. Over the last five years, school, I would say about 30 to 40% of the universities have over-enrolled and they've made more, in other words, they've made more offers to students than, they made more offers to students than they had seats, assuming that there would be a lot of students that wouldn't accept those offers. However, more students than they expected accepted those offers. So what does that do? It creates a big bubble or that comes through, right? The size of the class, they were expecting, let's say a class of a thousand. And now they find out they have 1400 or 1200. Well, first of all, where do they, where do they put them to sleep? Where do they get them into coursework? How do they provide food for them? All of these resources at the school get taxed. And what happens then the following year is, let's say they over-enrolled by 200, they're going to take 200 less students, maybe even take 300 less students to kind of give themselves to go. Remembering that even at Harvard, not 100% of the students enroll, they're about a 64% rate. The national average is about 34%. So they're going to offer three people admission for every one spot they're expecting to fill. So if they've over-enrolled by 200, the next year they want to reduce enrollment by 200 so that they have beds for everyone. They're actually going to offer to 600 less students. So that's going to, could change, especially for small schools, the trajectory of the admissions probabilities for any given student. 
So one of the things that we look at and we tell our families to look at very closely is what happened last year? What happened two years ago? Because those are the things going to impact. And why this is important is because not every factor that leads to an admission decision for a student is within the applicant's control, right? That is a perfect example of how admission the next year is impacted due to something that has nothing to do with each individual applicant in that applicant pool for that year, right? Over-enrolling is not something that an applicant woke up and said, I'm going to, you know, account for this with my application. That is not something that families consider, but these are real things that do impact any given cycle, right? Uh, and so it's important to know the context of those decisions. The other thing that, I'll, that we'll do it will be um, investment in programs. A really good example of that in California is the transition of Cal State Humboldt to a Cal Poly. They put a half a billion, that's right, with a big B, into that. Into that. However, um, they also forgot to do their housing as quickly as possible. So their goal was to double in size. So they started intentionally over-enrolling or expanding their enrollment, probably would be the right technical term. When the sophomores were registering now, they're finding out they're not having any housing because they haven't gotten, the housing hasn't caught up yet with the, um, the admissions. So we expect to see a little pullback next year in that because they need to find a place to put students. They're, they're, they're not going to sleep them in stacks in a, in a, in a warehouse somewhere. So they're going to have to find a safe place to do it. So there are even other factors that will come into play. Um, maybe something's happened in a city where there's um, power issues or there's uh, other, other types of things that can cause those kind of external enrollment issues as well. In general, so shifting gears back to admit rates and, and talking about, you know, likelihood of admission. Um, in general, though, a school that has under a 20% admit rate should never be categorized as a target school slash possible school slash safety school for anyone of any GPA level. Because if it has under a 20% admit rate, they are, you know, in theory, if it, assuming they have a 20% admit rate, they're taking one in every five applicants. Statistically, that is not in any individual applicant's favor, right? And so we need to make sure that people are aware of the hyper-competitive nature of these institutions and that they are looking at schools that have admit rates across the spectrum. Again, schools that they are genuinely happy with and excited about those opportunities and making sure they are not setting themselves up to receive, you know, a handful of no's in the spring of their senior year. Yeah, it's really important that you consider all of this when you're looking at what your at, at your what your balance list should look like. So typically, the way we categorize it is our good bet schools, or what typically in the society is called safety that we hate that term, uh, is a school that's going to take fifty to eighty percent of the students that are apply. That they the students GPA puts them in the top twenty percent of the GPA range. And here's a little thing you have to check. Is that an unweighted or a weighted GPA? Because some schools will show you weighted and some schools will show you unweighted. And guess what? They don't always tell you. So you should mostly assume it's an unweighted GPA to be the most conservative when it comes to that. So that's your good bet schools. We then talk about, you'll hear another term, target schools. These are schools where your student is, or you, or you as a student, or your, if you're a parent, your student is in that middle 50%. And typically it has an acceptance rate of 
50% or higher on that. And again, this is going to be different for each student, right? A 3.0 student is going to have a different set of good bet and possible or target schools than a student who has a 4.0. And so that would be your sort of targeted schools. And then the last two categories you'll often hear referred to as reach schools or aspirational schools or highly selective schools. The terminology we use is rejective and highly rejective. And this is this is the reason why we use that terminology is because it's more reflective of the school rather than the student, right? A student with a perfect 4.0 is, or even a student 3.8 or a 3.75 is a great student, right? And they're going to be applying to schools that reject more students than they accept. They're not necessarily uber selective. It's that they're more rejective. And so we want to make sure that our terminology is clear in how we refer to that. Those are schools, as Jordana mentioned, anything with a 20% acceptance rate or under is a rejective school and anything with a really 11% or under is a highly rejective school. That's for a perfect 4.0 student. Some of those schools with a 20% acceptance rate for a student who has a 3.5 are gonna be highly rejective as well. And it's the reason why it's so important to do that is applying to 20 highly rejective institutions is not like, oh, I have a 5% chance in each, and if I add that up, it's 100%. That's not how statistics work. If you, have, if you are likely to be not accepted at one institution, it is more likely you won't be accepted to any of the institutions. And another important part to consider in this too is you know, understanding that these applicant pools typically have you know, enough students in them to fill a class two or three times over with the exact same academic profile, right? It is not a personal reflection on the student who is not admitted to these schools that have single digit admit rates. There are other factors that go into play when it comes to schools deciding who to admit because they also have institutional priorities that they need to find, right? And need to, to find within their applicants. I find that term institutional priorities really fascinating and would love for you to expand on that a little more. Yeah. So schools have enrollment goals every single year and these goals can change from year to year. They may not change from year to year. It kind of depends. So an example of an institutional priority, um, we'll talk about the University of California system. Um, a few years back, they said in their strategic plan that currently is in place through the year 2030, um, in that strategic plan, it says that they are, you know, planning to have the UC system as a whole be more reflective of the state of California demographics, uh, because certain populations have been overrepresented in their campuses across the years. And so in order to reflect the state's demographics, they are really looking to increase students who represent um, first generation students, low income students. Um, students of underrepresented minority backgrounds, because these are students that come from families who make up, you know, the population of California, but have not been represented. So it has become an institutional priority for the UC schools to, you know, recruit and admit and enroll more students who fall into that demographic. Um, so that's one example of an institutional priority. Another institutional priority for some universities could be legacy applicants or children of staff and faculty of that institution. Recruited athletes can be institutional priorities. Going back to new programs, right? If they have a new major that they're looking to have students fill, that can be an institutional priority. 
women in STEM has been a huge institutional priority for a lot of schools over the last you know, five to seven years. Those are all different things. Again, some of those are in student control, some of them are not, and it really depends on the institution and what they're looking for. My favorite one is whenever we go to tour a college, no matter where it's been, how they brag that they have students from all 50 states and 49,000 countries or whatever that number is. Um, and, you know, realistically, a student from Wyoming, if they're looking to, to be able to brag about that institutional priority of enrolling students for all 50 states, may have a slight leg up over a student from California or New York, which tend to be overrepresented right. in most universities. So geographic lo location can play in. Um, I want to even take it one step further for institutional priorities. They may be looking for an oboe player that year, right? right? Or um, they're looking for certain types of research uh, capabilities. So institutional priorities can, can be more than just, I need full pay students or I need I, I want to, you know, have so many Pell students because we want to show that we're, you know, equitable. There's a lot of other things that can happen in institutional priorities that work on that. Yep. So we're going to shift gears a little bit now that we've talked a little bit about the breakdown of, of students or school selectivity and why it's important to be looking at schools with all different kinds of selectivity. Um, we're going to be talking about how to research schools so that you can build that balance list. What are some of the things that students should be looking for and looking to so that they can apply to schools, you know, that might have, you know, 20% or less admit rate, but also factoring in schools that have a 30 to 50% admit rate or 50 to 80% admit rate, because all of those bases should be covered. We never tell students, you know, that they can't apply to highly selective, highly rejective schools, but we wanna make sure that they are not putting all of their eggs in only those baskets, right? Uh, so how to research schools and why it's important. Um, first and foremost, for the most up-to-date information on any given university, their own website is going to be the best resource for you. Um, that is where you're gonna find a list of all of their programs, information on student life, information on the campus, information on the surrounding neighborhoods, information on athletics, if that's something that's important to you, opportunities like study abroad. All of these things that the schools offer their students can be found from their websites. Um, so that's first and foremost, especially when it comes to admission information, if you wanna get an idea of the types of students they've admitted in the past, their application deadlines, what's required, all of those good pieces. Another important resource to look at uh, is the FISC guide. Um, this is a third party research group that looks at universities from that high level overview, um, from both the academic lens and the student life campus community lens. So if you want to do a little bit of reading and not click through hundreds and hundreds of website tabs, uh, you know, the FISC guide is another good one to make sure that you are getting a, a third party sort of unbiased opinion from that perspective as well. I also think that campus visits, if students have the opportunity to actually step foot on campus, this is a great way to learn about the feel of a university, hear from admission representatives, if you can go to an information session on campus. Uh, but if you can't travel to a campus given time and affordability and just logistical planning of a trip, um, which is totally understandable, uh, most schools during the pandemic started offering virtual offerings and many have left their virtual tours up on their websites, knowing that they can reach a larger audience. And so, you know, see what virtual opportunities are, are there for you if you cannot get to a physical campus location to tour. 
Um, and one other great resource is that during the fall season, usually during the months of September and October, but it can be as early as August, um, admission representatives from various universities do actually spend time traveling on the road visiting high schools. If you cannot take time out of your schedule to go visit the campus, check in with your school's counseling office or if your school has a college and career center, um, this is where they're going to be visiting. And so see what resources or who is coming to your high school to share information on their university. We also get a lot of questions about what I'll call the uh, Yelp sites of uh, college admissions. Uh, a lot of questions about College Confidential, Niche. Uh, uh, there's a whole bunch of them. That I've even seen up. like Reddit and social media now uh, these days. Yeah. Yep. And, and so like Yelp, you need to take those reviews with a grain of salt. Like Amazon, you need to take them with a grain of salt. So, you know, you want to read to make sure that you understand what students are happy or unhappy with. But you want to also understand that the people who post there are either the super cheerleaders or the super unhappy in general. And so that's also that. true with any of the parent Facebook pages for given institutions. Oh my goodness, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So one of the things I'm sure you're gonna run across is the food. The people are gonna say the food's terrible. Let's be clear, the second semester of the freshman year, everyone hates the food because they've just been home and had mom's cooking for four months. And that first week of school when, you know, having uh, grilled cheese and Fruit Loops on Tuesday afternoon sounded really good. By January, you might actually want a salad and you might be tired of the food. So that's one of those ones that typically is good. So when Jordana was talking about being on campus, if you're able to, go hang out in the cafeteria. It's a great way to overhear what students are really saying about the campus unfiltered and a great way to taste the food to make sure that they're gonna do. Um, one of the things that we probably wanna make sure we address today also is which application round that you're going to apply in and how that may change your admission strategy, a school that could be highly rejective might be much, much uh, more amenable to your admissions if you did it during in different admissions rounds. And, and Jordan, I know you had a lot of experience at this with Northeastern, so I'm gonna let you take this one. Yeah, so there are some universities that heavily lean into their early decision schools. With that early decision round, which is a binding agreement between the student their school counselor and the university and their then the student's parents um, that basically says if you apply early decision and are admitted you are contractually obligated to attend um, and so those are guaranteed students in seats for the university they know that they will have those students on their campus come the fall and so there are certain institutions that because those are guaranteed students in seats they heavily lean into those rounds there are some schools that take up to you know, 50 to 60% of their incoming class through that early decision pool. Um, a good example of this is actually this application cycle, Boston University, um, they're taking nearly 57% of their incoming class from that early decision one and two rounds. Last year, they ended up landing just over 40% of their incoming class through early decision. They were aiming for about 50%. So this year to make up for that, um, they're swinging the other way by about 7% more. And so, you know, this is a strategy for schools to secure students. This could also be an application strategy to maximize your chances of admission at certain institutions. Now, there are some schools like Duke, for example, where Duke's regular decision admit rate is in the single digits. Their early decision admit rate is still hovering around 16%. That is still hyper-selective for anyone at any route, right? Um, so it really depends institution to institution 
in terms of how much they are prioritizing those early decision applicants versus how much of their class they're filling versus you know how much room they're leaving for students to apply at other rounds. So it really depends. Most schools in their sort of common data set um, can share applicant pool sizes and admit rates as well for those different rounds, depending on you know how transparent they are in that reporting. Yeah, I think it. I think it's important also to make sure that you've looked at all the other criteria that goes on with this and not just putting something up just because it looks good or you feel like you'll be able to put the name on your bumper sticker, but it really is a good fit for you. Right. And to make sure we have to go back to sort of all that selection criteria that's important on this. Um, I think it's also important not to, to make sure that when you're talking about a balanced list, you really balance it. So for example, we recommend uh, no more than 10 schools, and we'll talk for a second on why that's important. Three of those should be those good bet schools where you really, really feel good about your chances about getting in, and you're likely to get what we call the goodies. Those are scholarships, uh, special research opportunities, honors colleges, special travel programs that can go on. So that, that's one thing that's really important. Uh, th th then to make sure you have three of those, that you're going to feel really good about those. Every once in a while, we get a surprise on one of those, and you know, one of those over enrollment things happens that we haven't heard about yet. And suddenly that turns into a school for many students where it used to be a good bet and it is now a target school. Three targets and the other four, if you want to go for those rejective or highly rejectives, they haven't. I'm about to blow your mind when we talk about why we recommend 10. Um, part of it has to do with the first 10 years of, of the practice that I was in. I kept track of what students uh, applied to and what their results were. And I did not limit our practice at that time. We did not recommend. We recommended 10, but we didn't put that as a contractual obligation as we do today. And a lot of our students would apply to 22 and 25 schools, mostly against our advice. And here's what happened. Our school, our students who applied to approximately 10 schools, we, we in our practice count the UCs and the CSUs because we're a California-based practice as one, uh, because all you do is check, check a box and pay some, to pay some more money. So effectively, our students who applied to those 10 schools really applied to about 14 different actual unique um, fees for application, but only 10 unique applications. Uh, they got into between four and six schools typically. It was in the average. Some did better, some did worse. Uh, none of our kids got below three admissions, though, ever. Uh, and the students who applied to 2025 schools got into the exact same, four to six, no less than three typically a few more, but almost no one got into above 10. So what we found was that those students were doing more work for less opportunity of return. And so Plus we by recommend- By the time you get to the end of November and December with those regular decision deadlines, the quality of the applications <laughs> aren't as yes. strong because they're so stressed out about, you know, finishing the rest of their applications with studying for finals and receiving the decisions from their early schools that they've already submitted. And so the whole timeline just gets longer with the more schools that you add. So sorry, I didn't mean to, to interrupt. Yeah, we're interrupting away. And, and, <laughs> and it also becomes kind of a circular thing of you're spending so much time on the applications, you're not spending enough time at school, your grades go down. We found consistently those students who applied to 2025 schools, their grades dropped. And not a lot. Sometimes it was a plus or a minus that that you know dropped down from an A minus to a B plus or a or a, 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 a an A to an A minus but it's just enough for those highly rejected institutions 
to take you out of the running for a program that you were spending all your time working on the application instead of making sure your grades were up. So this becomes a sort of circular drain that happens where you spend more time on the application, your grades dead down, you're less likely to get in, so you feel like you need to spend more time on an application. So choosing your good bet and possible, or as they're known in society, safety and target schools with a great deal of care is going to let you end up with your best possible result. You want to throw those Hail Marys for Stanford and MIT and whatever? Um, we usually use the phrase, uh, feet on the ground, head in the clouds. That's great, but let's make sure you have good feet on the ground. Well, that, and it's also important to remember, you know, the more applications you submit, you're only going to end up enrolling at one institution. Um, and, Not really. <laughs> you know, like you're only going to submit a deposit to one school. You're only going to enroll at one school for the first semester of your first year of college. Being intentional about where you're applying as opposed to the trophy hunting mentality is really, really important because we want to make sure that you're going to be happy at the school that you end up at. So hopefully this, you know, is helpful in getting an understanding of, of what makes up a balanced list in terms of the different categories of schools and rejectivity and selectivity of these institutions, how to research schools effectively, why schools are categorized certain ways, and what factors are both within the student's control and beyond the student's control but equally as important to consider. So hopefully that gives you a little more context. And and when in doubt, be more conservative about where the school ranks. You know, if you if you think, you know, it's right on the border between the two, move that up the category. If if you think it's you think it's maybe it's a possible target or maybe it's rejective, throw it into rejective. You're going to find that you're going to be happier with your results if you're happy with all of the schools that you apply to and you make sure they're all equally fabulous for you. And many of our students end up going to schools they didn't think that they thought were their safety schools and actually have found that they're the best fits and they've still done magnificently in their career. Um, the last thing I want to mention just really quickly about this is how much work it takes to do those extra applications, right? So our average student who applies to 10 schools writes about 30 essays. Yeah, that's right, 30 essays, you heard it correctly. They're actually about only eight original pieces. The rest are derivatives because your major is gonna be your major and you're gonna write about why your major. It's gonna be different word counts for schools and different requirements of what they're asking for. So every school that you're gonna add will add anywhere from one to five essays. So you, rather than having those eight original pieces, you may end up with closer to 20 or 30 if you're applying to 20 or 25 schools. Yeah. Hopefully this helps, um, and we hope that you have learned something new, um, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to the College Unlocked podcast. For more information on College Unlocked and our services as independent educational consultants, please visit us at collegeunlocked.com. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.